Welcome to a new episode of Better Europe, the pan-European podcast. Um, so we are back from the summer break and uh, the streets are full of Christmas already. <laughs> But uh, yeah, anyway, um, I'm sitting here in Cologne with um, Lorenzo Marsili, one of the co-founders of DM25, right? I participated in starting up this beautiful and much-needed project <laughs> okay. with many people. And a former CC member. And yeah, and you are today in Cologne for a, a, a reading, or what do you do? And to look at the Christmas lights, of course. Yes, <laughs> yes, uh, as I said, <laughs> the streets are full of Christmas or Besinnlichkeit, as we say. Oh, that, that, that sounds much more violent than Christmas <laughs> lights. Uh. Yes, you can say it also about Besinnlichkeit, but uh, oh, that's cute. it's, uh, <laughs> no, it's, it's so right. much Christmas, it's more like Besinnlichkeit. <laughs> That's my attitude towards Christmas as well, <laughs> if I have to be very honest. No, I'm, I'm here at this wonderful academy for world art, Academy der Kunstlerfeld, yeah. to give a talk on cosmopolitics, actually. Ah, okay. Very much connected with what we've been doing with Diem for the last three years and a half. Yes, yes. As far as I know, uh, a few members of the DSC are going to be here as well. Um, and uh, I also invited my friends from Düsseldorf. But, you know, there's a kind of... Uh, um, Competition. Yeah, between, uh, between Düsseldorf and Cologne. I don't know if, if it's actually known outside of Germany. Yeah. <laughs> Especially in Italy, you know, we have this since the Renaissance. City-states fighting oh, one yes, against yes. the other. Still active because of the radio stations and football clubs, right? Absolutely. I've heard about it that Absolutely. every big radio station is part of the football club or somehow... Uh, uh, fan, officially no. fan radio or something like this? They, they have to, you have to take a stand. You know, yeah. Italy is oh, a politicized okay. country and you cannot not take a stand when it comes to football. You can when it comes to politics, but in football you have to be very clear <laughs> of where you yeah, stand, yeah, exactly. what's, your, what's your belonging. But also we have newspapers, you know, that take the piss, make fun of one uh, city against the other. So in Pisa there is a newspaper that's uh, basically a satirical newspaper making fun of Florence. Okay. And in Florence, which is 50 <laughs> kilometers away, they have the same kind of newspaper making fun of Pisa. Mm. So this is, uh, you know, city-states, but as you had yeah, well, also in this part of Germany. Yeah, yeah, back in, uh, back in Middle Ages and stuff. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's still here. It's, uh, it's interesting. I mean, We're going Europe back to the Middle Ages in many ways. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Europe is full of history, though. <laughs> True. <laughs> so, okay. Um, so, one of your main things you talk about, as far as I see it, is, is like uh, to, to get Europe united in a political way. To have a stand against uh, the big blocks right now, let's say, or the US and China right now. Is yes, right? not, not, not let's say, for its own sake, not mm -hmm. to play big power politics or to bring back an imperialist vision oh, to no, this continent, already. which has caused already <laughs> quite too much trouble all around the yeah, planet. European imperialists, <laughs> have enough of that though. Exactly. <laughs> But I think the idea is really uh, that we need to be able to take back control, to mm -hmm. cite the slogan of Brexit, over the great challenges that are coming our way. And these challenges clearly bypass the mental and material boundaries of the nation state. There is no way that you can tackle great financial capital, that you can tackle social dumping between uh, workers across the globe, that you can rein in the, the kind of surveillance capitalism that comes from Silicon Valley, that you can tackle, of course, the gigantic climate crisis, unless you develop a political capacity, and hence a democratic capacity, a capacity for citizens to participate in decision-making that steps beyond the limits of the nation-state. We have a, a globalized economic system, we have a globalized system of challenges that we're thrown into, and a nationalized political system mm. that makes us completely impotent. 
So for me, Europe is the name of that stepping beyond the level of the national state. And because Europe has a, a, a rather united economic sphere, some institutional um, federalism mm. of, of sorts, however inadequate it may be, it is a good place to begin doing it. But if even Europe cannot step beyond its addiction to national politics, to a failed, impotent model of national politics, then I think it's going to be very hard to do it beyond Europe, which obviously has to be our, our aspiration uh, at some point. I see, okay. Yes, I, I I think Europe makes itself something like a, a dwarf in, in politics, or as you mentioned, uh, for for climate change poli policy. It's always mentioned, especially in Germany, though. Even though Germany is like one of the five uh, strongest economic powers on the world, and uh, it's always like, yeah, if we change something, it's it doesn't matter. We don't have to do anything at all. It's it's just like that. Um, some parties say that well but but especially when when germany starts uh, as a leading figure in, in in europe starts changing to a green economy or something um i guess most nations in europe will will follow no it's, I, i think there are two things that have to be done in parallel germany is the richest country in europe It's also the greatest polluter of Europe, mm, whether absolutely. it's through diesel or new, coal. <laughs> yeah, and new record numbers of uh, waste, actually. Right. More for plastic waste and, right. and cartonage. It's all exactly. everything uh, so uh, Germany, because of Amazon. It has <laughs> a particular responsibility for leading the climate uh, uh, change um, uh, process, uh, but it has to change its economic policy. What's mm. keeping Germany as the largest polluter of the European Union is the fact that a failed Uh, austerity-led economic policy from the top is making a country that could fail to implement a real Green New Deal, to invest in the uh, transformation of its economic production, to invest in the greening of its production processes, and to and to remain anchored to a completely failed economic model, the Schwarz-Null, the balanced yeah. budget model, the austerity-driven uh, hard sphere and withering away of the welfare system in order to enable even greater labor exploitation, which is then met with low-cost production, mm. which has to be imported, because people are not paid enough, and then uh, what is the other side of the coin, they are enabled to buy H&M or to buy from Amazon and to buy very cheap goods that are extremely yeah, CO2 stuff. consuming. And this kind of model, low wages and low cost, high CO2 goods, is the kind of doom loop that yeah, we need to be able to break. And Germany is absolutely able to do it mm -hmm. if it changes its economic model, which also means if it changes its political leadership, of course. Yeah. Then there is another question, which is that obviously you cannot have ecologism in one country. Like once upon a time, you couldn't have socialism in one country. Mm -hmm. It is not enough for a single country, however important as Germany may be, uh, to drive that change. There needs to be a transnational cooperation and especially a transnational bottom-up pressure to enable to reform a system that at the moment works um, a little bit like a jungle, where different nation-states are putting competition one against the other, and they need to increase their wealth, their power, which means their production and their consumption, if they're not to be eaten in, in this international jungle. So there needs to be a, a reform of the way that nations themselves relate to one another. And here, Europe, as one of the largest markets, if not the largest market in the world, can play a role in enabling its component, its member states to perform this kind of virtuous green transition and protecting them also from this kind of jungle-like international competition leveraging on the force of its market. To put it very simply, we could have a European trade policy 
that says that only goods that are produced ethically with high labor standards and high environmental standards can be sold within the European Union. This would empower European companies to increase those standards and it would force companies from other parts of the planet to do the same. But th mm. this requires, of course, a courageous, progressive, green yeah, yeah, Europe, yeah, of the kind that DiEM25 aspires to build. <laughs> but it's also kind of, this kind of thinking, um, sometimes I doubt it's, it's kind of avant-garde, actually. It's, it's like this, the common people just uh, like here on the streets in Cologne, they Or just take Brexit as an example. A lot of people fear uh, that Brussels is ru ruling about everything, and we are losing control about our own nation. And uh, can you can you tell something about how we can um, um, get this change to people, like to people's minds, or how can it actually happen? This is true. We 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 live. You know the famous. Uh, fake Chinese uh, saying may you live in interesting times mm. which is ac actually meant to be a curse meaning that interesting times are also times that are filled with danger uh, and, and we certainly do live in such an interesting time we live in a time when the kind of ideas that are needed to save humanity simply uh, from expiring out of this planet are ideas that are avant-garde in nature that are not common sense yet We are, if like, at the cusp, uh, at that moment, uh, when the old world has died and the new world is not yet born, as Gramsci used to put it. Now, the moment of interregnum, the moment when monsters come up all around us, and we see them in the Salvinis, in the Trumps of uh, our world. So, there is something indeed complicated in this historical time where we need to drive history forwards and take mm. the people with us. And we cannot use the, the type of rhetoric, of arguments, of political structures and parties that we inherited from the past. We need to create the new, uh, and creating the new is, is obviously very, very, very difficult. I think in Europe in particular, national leaders have been uh, absolutely part of the problem in uh, fomenting this idea of a loss of control because the nation is no longer in charge. This idea that you need to recuperate your borders, you need to recuperate your national sovereignty if you want to protect people from the transnational markets, if you want to uh, achieve social justice, if you want to take back control. Uh, the truth is that all of us have already lost control mm. over our destiny, and we've lost it because our political structures, which are national in scope, are unable to yeah. rein in financial capital, to nationalize Google, if, you, if I can put it with a slogan, yeah. or to create a digital infrastructure that's not the kind of surveillance-based and ex data extraction-based uh, model of Silicon Valley. But this is where Europe comes in. We need movements that have the courage to outline a vision of change. This could be heaven. It's not just the title of a song. It's the title of our world, if we manage to transform it. We have all the capacity to produce all the goods that we need, all the services that we need, all the healthcare that we need, and we're not doing it. And the question is why? Because we are addicted to a bankrupt economic and environmental model that needs to be changed bottom up. Bottom up. It's it's a time for radicality. It's a shame that in the European continent only Jeremy Corbyn is able to make arguments of that kind of systemic radicality. And on the continent, instead, we still have a social democracy and even, to a good extent, a Green Party system that is still addicted to the past and not really constructing the future. But do you think that po politics actually has enough power these days? I mean, if there are some, some ways these goals can achieve, uh, it's, it's also like uh, the actions Macron did, which started uh, the, the Gilles movement. Uh, it's like more taxes on um, fuel, for example. 
and um, a lot of people don't agree with that. Uh, they don't see right so. then what actually is necessary. Yeah, but Macron's way is exactly the way not to go. Well, about he made a good uh, a lot of mistakes, though. I mean, uh, if you put taxes on, on on poor people, you have to give the money back to them, of course. Well, look, what Macron way. did in basically the same semester uh, was to cut the taxes for corporations and for rich people mm. and then increase yeah. the price of fuel yeah, yeah. which hits poorest people and especially those who live outside of large cities where yeah, you can yeah. move with public transport and France is a, uh, is a big country with a big countryside where people use cars if they don't live in Paris or Lyon or Marseille and it's the combination of these two things you enable capital and rich people to get more money mm. more capital and then you put climate adjustment costs on the shoulders of the poorest in society What we need to do is to completely reverse that approach. We need to take money from capital, from large corporations, from large multinationals, from rich people, and we need to make that capital available to give good jobs to people who are having a difficulty making ends meet. Good jobs in climate adaptation, in climate transformation, good job in protecting our, our, our ecosystem from flooding, from drought, from all the disasters that climate change is bringing. So what, what needs to happen is, is a transformation of the economic system. Mm -hmm. What Macron has done is to try and do ecologism, is to combine ecologism and neoliberalism. It was the government the before Macron, uh, to be fair, as far as I remember. The law that drives the fuel prices up was the government before Macron. Yes, but the Social Democrats are absolutely the same. I mean, the Social Democrats have constructed in the 1990s the neoliberal system. As yes, well. yes. Same everywhere. In Germany, yeah, it's, a, yeah. it's a child of the show. Yeah, it's a, but it's happening right now. The SPD is changing the Social Democrats in Germany. Right, exactly. Yeah. But this is the direction. Is to have, we, we need to try and create change also within existing parties. The Labour Party was the party of Tony Blair. Yeah. It was the party that was implementing Margaret Thatcher's and Don Ronald Reagan's new Third way politics. Third way politics. <laughs> and then we have Jerry Corbyn. So uh, w w when I talk about change, it's not just about creating something new. We also need new things like DiEM uh, and, and other movements. But we also need to perform an, uh, an ecosystem transformation mm. of our existing party, party structure. Yeah, the Green New Deal. A Green New Deal. Yeah. Then when it comes to Macron, let me say that even... The good bits that Macron may have, and there are a few things, especially regarding Europe, that Macron has said which are decent. Many things are bad. Uh, they, they, they go in the direction of more intergovernmental system, greater role for nation states. But a few, a few things go in the right direction, but it will be blocked by Germany. Mm -hmm. So we, we have a problem where uh, not only is Macron a neoliberal, but even somebody like Macron is too radical for the current <laughs> level of suicidal policies that, that the German yeah, government is conducting. Yeah, yeah. So if you, if you ask me what is the game changer in the next years, is a real change in the government of Germany. Absolutely, yeah. It's absolutely necessary. And uh, I can imagine that it will, would happen, even though the Greens are incredibly strong right now, and maybe uh, we will have a, a leftist progressive government next time. No. <laughs> well, look, the, the, the um, uh, red, red, green coalition in Berlin, red for red example, exactly. is doing really good policies when it comes to housing, to Airbnb, uh, to tapping the. Then, of course, there are, uh, you will know better than me all the difficulties that these yeah, policies Berlin have is been implemented. A crazy place in German <laughs> politics. <laughs> But a red, red, green government uh, would actually represent quite a shift, not only for German but for mm. European policy. Uh, and let me say one thing about this: in Germany. There is a risk that people are too focused on their national dimension. Mm. 
So Dresden declares an anti-Nazi emergency. Fine. But the reason why there is Nazism and rising fascism in Germany is not only because of German political choices. It is because Germany is keeping the European Union as a dysfunctional economic and political space, and that dysfunction breeds fascism and breeds the kind of monsters that Pegida and AfD represent. If you want to really address fascism in Germany, you need to change German policy towards the European Union, and you need to change European policy. And Germany is absolutely at the heart of this task. It's an interesting phenomenon that a lot of even conservative politicians, old conservative politicians, though, that go from Germany to Brussels, come back like, uh, well, we have m to care more for uh, our European partners and uh, have to abandon the uh, black zero. It's, it's happening, actually. Like uh, the former uh, prime minister of um, my home federal state, Baden-Württemberg, he was known all the time for very strange uh, conservative positions, and now he came up with this. Is I think it's... Look, I, 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 I'm, I'm atheist, but I, but I, was grow, I, I grew up in a Catholic country. Yeah. So I, I believe in the power of redemption. And <laughs> <laughs> so everything is possible, but now we need to see action. It's not enough to just utter a few nice-sounding words. Uh, the policy hasn't changed. Yeah. And, and, that's, and that's where you can judge a politician, not on what they say and what they do. Do you think it will change with the new... Uh, um no. Von der Leyen? Yeah. No, I mean, she's <laughs> obviously part of the system that caused the problem in the first place. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this is precisely the instance of making nice-sounding uh, rhetorical statements about the Green New Deal, for example, but then being very weak on substance. Uh, not necessarily because she doesn't believe in it, maybe she doesn't believe in the real Green New Deal, but also because the power structure and the national interests are such that you really need to overhaul the system if you want to have a proper European Green New Deal. So the risk is that we have this kind of red washing or green washing where the elites uh, are somewhat afraid mm -hmm. of the people getting upset uh, by the current status quo and so they rhetorically start to utilize some of the language that they think uh, might keep them in power a few years longer. But this is just a technique for buying time which is not working, hasn't worked and the result will only be greater and greater power for the far right. Mm. Since you're from Italy, uh, what should we think as pro, uh, progressives about the new Italian government? I mean, a lot of... Uh, nothing. You shouldn't think anything because yeah. there is really nothing to think about it. The, it it's, um, it's a government that's, that, that has the sole objective of delaying the moment that Matteo Salvini comes to power. Mm, it's, okay. it's glued together by fear yeah. for what will happen the moment elections come. All the opinion polls are pointing to uh, an absolute majority for the right-wing coalition. Salvini is between 30 and 35 percent. Worryingly enough, in the last weeks, really in the last very few weeks, in the, in the, in the month of November and early December, Uh, there has been um, an incredible rise of a neo-fascist party called Brothers of Italy, which went from 3-4% to 10%, and it's a party that's to the right of Salvini, mm -hmm. and it's going mm -hmm. to be Salvini's govern governing ally if they, if they win power together, they are in a, in a, in a coalition. So the current social democrat uh, uh, five-star movement government is, is really there to delay the moment yeah. of reckoning with election and with a far-right majority in the country. Of course, the more they just float with totally unsubstantial policy choices, 
without making any dramatic overhaul of the economic system, without ushering in productive investments, without leveraging on the ideas of the Green New Deal that they have made available for them, uh, this increases the chance of the right wing coming to power. Because people perceive this government as a government that's there precisely to do nothing. A government that you cannot think anything about because it's just there to take up time and wait and wait and wait. Some people were expecting something different because the Falster movement has a left-wing component, has a green component. Uh, the Social Democratic Party uh, got a new secretary a few months ago, which is a bit more left-leaning than, than normally the case. And so people were expecting that, uh, that out of the two, something more ambitious would come. But for the time being, we're looking at a completely centrist government mm. that's just there to continue with the status quo as long as it lasts. But I hope it changes, huh? Yeah, you never know. <laughs> Lega Nord is still a, a kind of separatist party, isn't it? No, it was incredible how quickly that transformation yeah. came. They, they were historically a, a separatist party for the north of Italy, and now they're a nationalist party. Completely. All of Italy. Oh, yeah. Their slogan is Italians first. <laughs> they should name... Uh, should, uh, uh, they changed the name. Yeah. It's With no longer Lega Nord, it's just Lega. Ah, okay, okay, I see. It's no longer the Northern <laughs> League. It's just a league now. <laughs> no, it completely went Le Pen. It, it, it yeah, saw the so opportunity of transforming a localized Northern Italian movement uh, into Italy's uh, copycat of, uh, of Marine Le Pen. And more you successful than actually, that. Uh, haven't you debated uh, Le Pen in Italy? Marion Le Pen. Ah, She's, I, I can say that Marion Le Pen is a very intelligent woman, which yeah. is scary. And in fact, uh, I can say that uh, some of the politicians, especially the young politicians I've met or debated in TV from the League, are actually rather intelligent people, which is also very mm -hmm. scary. Uh, I've been in a situation where young politicians from the League were making very plausible left-wing arguments about workers being left out, precarious uh, employments having to be having to be tackled, the south of Italy not having decent health standards mm. as it deserves. So adopting that language from the left and of course uh, employing it for a nationalist vision. This is what fascism was actually, yeah, it was yeah. national socialism. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. There's a part of the German AfD as well which is right now very successful. Um, they call it the Flügel, right. the wing. Right. Well, Mussolini was a socialist, yeah, yeah, yeah. originally. No, but this, um, the, the, the problem is that we have left... We, we, we are, since 2008, we are seeing the slow-motion death of neoliberalism. Oh. Uh, this system that governed for 30, 40 years, that the left wing was uh, completely part and parcel of constructing in the 90s, Schroeder Blair, etc., etc., Bill Clinton. Uh, and that slow-motion death is being denied by most mainstream centre-left and certainly by the centre-right by this being accepted by the far-right mm. which attacks neoliberalism and financial capitalism and gives, of course, its own nationalist solution to it which, in the end, completely advantages the richest parts of the population. Bolsonaro in Brazil is totally subservient to the large financial wealth of the country. Trump, the first thing he does is to cut corporate taxation for the richest in the United States. But they begin by accepting the idea that that system has died and they try to transform it in a way that benefits the same constituencies, the richest, but that tries to move a step beyond. Mm. 
mm. and that raises uh, an interest in the population because finally you have somebody who tells you what you feel yeah, yeah. that the system around you is bankrupt and that something new is needed then their solution is worse than what we have at the moment of course but at least they don't deny that this system is bankrupt which is what mainstream central left does and I think voters have had enough to be told that the status quo is fine that things will just get better by magically continuing to do what we've been doing for the last 10 years of European and global crisis so how can Europe have a chance a chance in the future with just as you said the um, developments it seems to be pretty dark yes uh, I I uh, <laughs> you I don't have to come up with a solution. No, well, look, a new crisis will come so. at some point. Um, a new financial, economic, political crisis of magnitude will mm. arise. When it did in 2008, the left-green field was completely inadequate. Uh, the left had been building up that neoliberal model, and when it blew up, it simply tried to rush to reconstruct it again by mm. putting the bankers back in charge and refloating the economy. The finance minister of uh, Obama, Tim Gaffner, famously said, our job was to foam the runways for the banks so that the banks could take off again after the crash. So that was the left's approach to the crisis in 2008. We need to be able to build sufficient common sense, sufficient popular power, sufficient infiltration in the existing party system that when an opportunity for a system overhaul comes because of a crisis, we're ready to enshrine a new model and to take power with that vision of a new model. Of course, we don't have to wait that a crisis hits. We can begin now by doing perhaps what the SPD is doing. I, I haven't seen enough yet of the new leadership, certainly what, what Corbyn is doing, what some elements of the European Greens uh, are, are doing. We need to radicalize our approach and we need to really make a link with a new generation of activists on the street who understand very well that this system is over and mm. that the answer has to be planetary in scope, because planetary are the challenges coming our way. There's a, as far as I know, there's a big struggle between Friday for Future activists, for example, um, if we should stay to the system as it is, or capitalism in general, let's say that is that way, um, or should we change to another system. Like, do you think that the movements that formed last year could actually bring change? Change happens whether you want it or not. The, the, especially in these years, we've seen a real historical acceleration. Uh, things move very quickly. Political change, climate change, yes. it's, coming, <laughs> it's coming at quite a, some speed. So the question is the direction of that change and who has the, uh, the empowerment for guiding that change and for, and for, and for uh, defining that change. Uh, I think movements have a very powerful role to play. Firstly, because they are not stuck in the very short-term approach of party politics, where mm -hmm. you always need to think about the next election, you need to try and get a majority, which means sometimes broadening your message by diluting it. Movements are able to really look at the present with the eyes of the future, if you like, to position themselves 10 years from now and to see what needs to happen in order for the planet to be an inhabitable system 10 or 20 years down down the line. And this element of, 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 of beautiful radicalism, you know, this element of uh, being able to break free from the chains of the, con of the politically contingent that parties are, are often prey to, is absolutely key. This was the element that uh, the so-called ultra-globalizing movement uh, today 
this month we're celebrating the 20th anniversary from the Seattle protests mm. uh, that fought against the WTO and that kind of globalization. That was a movement talking about climate change, financial regulation, migration, way before these issues came on top of the agenda and exploded eventually. So that role of movements to almost have a prophetic uh, role in, in describing what's coming up and, and acting from the standpoint of the future, I think it's very important. And then clearly movements have a chance to change common sense. What's happened in the last year with climate is, very, is really telling. We were not in a situation a year ago where the climate crisis was on every media's radar, yeah. on every politician's tongue. Then, of course, politicians greenwash their words, the industry greenwashes their production. We're obviously not there with the solution, but the transformation of common sense over the last 12 months has been really powerful. And that transformation is not the result of political parties. It's the result of the Friday for Future movement and the wider climate movement, mm -hmm. Extinction Rebellion, journalists who've been working on this issue for years, NGOs have been working on this issue for decades. They changed the narrative in the last year. And this is also how, how, how change happens. Then, of course, you need a politics that listens. And there we're still really lagging behind. We have a population, if you like, that's way more ahead than their political representatives. Mm. You've spent a lot of time in China as well, right? Yes, yeah? sometime. Well, what did you do? <laughs> I, it was a previous life. I was uh, uh, um, writing on um, uh, the, the budding cultural scene of China. So the idea of China as a factory of ideas and not, not just a factory of cheap plastic goods. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so Chinese contemporary philosophy, contemporary art, uh, trying to put a spotlight on this great uh, producer of ideas that China was uh, when I was there. It was 2006, 2007. Uh, and there is even more, even more today. And I think if we really want to look at our future challenges, we need much greater avenues of contact, political contact, intellectual contact, people-to-people uh, -people contact with, uh, with China. What, for instance, is being talked about, discussed, implemented in terms of technology and artificial intelligence in mm -hmm. China is absolutely fundamental. And that type of conversation has to be able to break the great firewall of China on the one side and the great new liberal firewall of the NSA yeah. with Silicon Valley on the other. This, op, this, if we have to choose between being surveyed by the Chinese Communist Party or by the NSA, <laughs> having our data extracted by Silicon Valley or by Tencent, by Du and the Chinese giants, then we have lost already. That's not the choice which we, we, we should be making. We should be sitting together to discuss how to break out of this fake dichotomy mm. and to create a technological ecosystem, a digital ecosystem, an artificial intelligence ecosystem that is on the side of citizens, that is democratic, that is open source, uh, that is not uh, reinforcing the inequalities at the base of our economic system. And Europe, paradoxically, could be very well placed for that because Europe is totally cut out of yeah, the US-China yeah. technological competition. It has no chance of copying either the American or the Chinese model so what it could do is to perform a third alternative that takes ethics, sustainability, democracy, and puts it at the heart of a new, a new yeah. digital ecosystem. Yeah, it's sad. Russia is doing a better job than <laughs> Europe, though, uh, for <laughs> autocratic <laughs> reasons. Right, for <laughs> autocratic yeah. How free you are in <laughs> Russia's digital ecosystem, I don't know. Yeah, there's a lot of talking about a European Facebook or a European... Google Look, there is a question of money. For sure, Europe needs to invest way more money in technology uh, than it does. At the moment, it invests nothing compared to, to how much China is putting in. 
they've just uh, launched construction for a new artificial intelligence intelligence campus near Beijing which costs 5 billion euros mm -hmm. and that's just one instance of, uh, of a whole array of public and private investment led by the government so of course it's a question of, of having more money uh, but it's also a question of uh, showing some muscle in the utilization of its market power uh, that is to say the, the reason why China was able to build its own digital ecosystem and to have such gigantic champions in the technology field is because it protected its market it was large enough to be able to be autonomous for some time and to protect its ecosystem from the invasion from Silicon Valley giants. And it fostered the creation of homegrown digital champions, digital players, Baidu, Tencent, WeChat, etc. etc. Uh, I don't think Europe should do the same in terms of playing the protectionist game to create its own Facebook, its own Google. But what it could do is to regulate really mm. towards the top to when it, when it comes to privacy to data to free access to the data that is collected because we know that the business model of Silicon Valley is totally about monetizing and privatizing the data that's generated by the users that kind of stuff can be regulated mm. and Europe is a market large enough that no one can afford to be shut out of the European market so by really increasing the regulation within the European Union market and maybe also touching that regulation to some trade treaties, you create an ecosystem that is much more conducive to new companies coming in that respect those standards towards the top. And then maybe you also convince Google and the likes to change their, mm -hmm. their, their behavior. The GDPR, the, 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 the General Direction on Privacy of the European Union, is a good example in this sense. It's too weak, it's not obviously ambitious enough, but it has changed the way that the global digital system operates because they need to comply with European Union regulations on privacy. It probably could be very easy for Europe, but they just can't speak with one one voice, though. I no, mean, for that's example, that's yeah, right. for example yeah. just as you said, it's, it's going on with the taxes for the big companies right now, with yes. in case of France. Yes. It's, it's starting to become an economic war, mm. <laughs> but uh, if Europe will stand together, it's probably like, okay, we don't have a choice. <laughs> yeah. We have to do it that way. Yeah, we know that Europe loses up to 100 billion euros yeah. a year because of multinational tax evasion. And we know that we could solve it like that in a second yeah. if the countries came together and decided to have a common tax base and not to allow these loopholes that Ireland, Netherlands yeah. and Netherlands and other but countries. Is it is it like not wanted by, by the society or the politicians or is policy have politics become so weak? Well, this is really about perceived national interests. So Ireland, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, they're a small country that make a lot of money stealing taxes from other European countries. Uh, and if you are the Prime Minister of Ireland, you say, well, it's in my interest to continue stealing the taxes from Germany, from France, from Italy. And so you boycott any European attempt to have a common, harmonized tax base when it comes to multinational corporations. The problem is that when, it, when, for instance, Greece wants to do something about the humanitarian crisis that the country is in because of the EU-mandated austerity measures, then the European Union structures are very powerful. And immediately they come in saying, no, Greece, you cannot give 50 euros more to the pensioner. But when it comes to the Netherlands, stealing taxes and enabling Google mm. to have fake systems there that drain all the money away and send it to Bermuda, then the European Union is a, is a scared mouse. It doesn't yeah. do anything. So, yes, politics is weak, but you also see politics being very strong. 
in the case of Greece. So it's a question of politics being strong with the weak and very weak with the strong. Mm. And that, that's, what we need to, that's what we need to change. Of course, if you have a, pri a president of the European Commission, uh, which we had until a month ago, who is the man who set up the tax uh, evasion <laughs> scheme in True, Luxembourg, yeah. you cannot expect major yeah, change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, yeah, the Lion will be better, maybe, on this. Uh, so but I don't, <laughs> I don't know. She did horrible on every job she had in German policy before. Right. <laughs> you know her well here. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you ask me about the power of social movements, mm -hmm. and I think DiEM25 has showed both the importance and the difficulty of social movements in driving through historical change. DiEM25 has had and has the most acute understanding of the challenges that we face, mm -hmm. has the right kind of solution, and it has it at the level, at the scale of the problem itself, in terms of both organizing transnationally and doing so with a vision as powerful as the Green New Deal. Mm. But then we also know that it's extraordinarily difficult for movements like these to make impact in a very complex reality, to become majorities, to shape, to shape public debate, to enter parliaments, as we've seen in the recent European elections in the case of the U25. But I think what's good to be reminded of is that it's always been like this. The history of the last uh, century and longer than that is the history of social movements failing and failing and failing again and failing again until they win. This was how women got enfranchised and uh, partial equality. This is how the black population went from racist colonialism and apartheid to having a black president of the United States. This is how the workers' movement went from having children exploited in factories to having basic guaranteed mm. standards in, in the 1970s already. So we're looking at a long game of change that uh, movements like the M25 are part and parcel of uh, constructing, and this is how history moves forwards. It's not easy, but in the end, if you look back, it's our political side that's always, always won on the long period. And so I think we should be quite confident in our ability, because today's world, the good bits of today's world, have been constructed by, constructed by people like us. Feeling and feeling again and feeling better and then winning. <laughs> True. <laughs> well said, Lorenzo. Thank you. Okay. Thanks a lot. <laughs>